Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Holbert. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this show we're going to be looking once more at cults. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on? Around the time this show goes out, we should be releasing The Blasphemous Tome, issue 5.5. This is the fanzine that we produce for all our Patreon backers, so if you back us on Patreon at any level, you'll be able to download the PDF version, that's the only version there'll be, of this fanzine, featuring a new scenario from our good friend, Mr. Scott Dorwood. Yes, it's a scenario called The Murder Shack, and from the initial playtests I've had, it's lived up to its name. Was there murder? Uh, lots of murder, yes. Was there a shack? There was a shack. Perfect. <laughs> I, just, I, just, I just picture it as the alternative title as Scott's Home. <laughs> and speaking of things we're doing for our backers, we are still going ahead with our lockdown specials. These are the special episodes we've been recording while we're in isolation, talking about the various media we've been consuming, films, books, television, going into them in some detail and talking about how we might use them in our gaming lives, you know, like, like we do in regular episodes, only more. And if you're listening to this in, uh, I don't know, two, three, five hundred years time, then I hope that the whole coronavirus lockdown thing is but a distant memory. <laughs> oh, won't that be nice? The idea of it being still here in a hundred years is uh, <laughs> boggling. I mean, I'm guessing that's probably not a direct concern to us, but, you know, who knows, with uh, new... Mythos, technology, all things are possible. I, I intend to live forever or die trying. And now back to our main topic, cults. We spent a lot of time talking about what cults are, a little bit about what kinds of people are attracted to cults, and more importantly, I guess, what kind of person leads a cult. And now we're going to get in a little more into what kinds of things cults believe and what kinds of more unusual varieties of cults we might encounter. When you look at this stuff and you think there are people in the world that actually believe this stuff and they don't actually, it's not just like they casually believe in it. They actively believe in it. They leave their families maybe behind. You know, they go to such extremes as like maybe castrating themselves or you know committing suicide. The, the absolute extremes or, or killing other people. You know, like total extremes for these beliefs. And when you look at these beliefs, I think most sane, rational people are going to say that's nuts. But on the other hand. Are you going to argue on the other hand? <laughs> yes, I am. I really am. Yeah, they're nuts and they kill people, but on the other hand... <laughs> no, it's not the actions, it's the beliefs. I, I think a, a lot of what makes the beliefs of cults so shocking and weird to people is the unfamiliarity. Mm. Uh, there are all sorts of things that are perhaps parts of mainstream religions or, or even other belief systems that we just accept that are so much a part of the fabric of society that are so much part of what we've been brought up with that we don't necessarily question them, that if they were presented to us as a brand new set of beliefs, they might seem very weird. I, I, I don't want to get too blasphemous here. 
Why not? It's in our name. I know. I, that's why I was hesitating. But I don't want to attack the deeply held beliefs of some of our listeners. But if Christianity, for example, were to come along as a brand new religion today, let's take Catholicism, for example, and you were trying to explain things like the Holy Trinity and transubstantiation and so on from scratch to someone who had no concept of Christianity and these beliefs beforehand, it would sound really fucking weird, wouldn't it? For a lot of our listeners, it might sound weird anyway, because if they weren't raised Catholic, it's it's not part of their belief system. But there is a familiarity with them that makes them perhaps a bit less weird to us. But if they were, like I say, brand new beliefs, if a new prophet popped up and sort of said, eat this food, drink this liquid, and they will turn into my flesh inside you, and we will you know, have, have some form of union, and th- this isn't a metaphor, this is really happening. I, I, I think we'd say, that's really weird. But this is a, a major part of the belief of millions, billions of people around the world. Yes. I mean, when you said, on the other hand, and you said there are lots of beliefs in mainstream religions that didn't really change my mind scott (laughs) personally speaking i look at those beliefs and yeah i think on the one hand you can respect that people as individuals for you know they can i mean to be honest they can believe whatever they want to believe they can be whatever they want to be when it's like their rules start to to oppress me then you know that's a concern to me but if they're just expressing themselves if they want to do whatever they want to do. That, that's perfectly fine by me. But, you know, in my opinion, some of those things seem pretty crazy. But, you know, who am I to say? But that's my opinion. And I think that the vast majority of people, I, I'd hesitate to say everyone because, I mean, who the hell knows? But I'd say the vast majority of people have some form of unexamined beliefs, you know, things that they might believe that to anyone else would seem crazy, that they they believe without perhaps empirical evidence, solid proof, whatever, that are just part of their uh, system of values, that, you know, maybe a religious belief or a spiritual belief, maybe a political belief, that, you know, is something that they hold to be self-evident, that, you know, other people might think, no, 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 that, that's just a bit loony. Mm. I mean, I was reading today about, you know, we, we referred to the coronavirus and, and all of that. And I don't think it's a significant number of people, but, you know, there's a group of people who think it's caused by uh, 5G, the yeah. communications network. And you know, they're out on the streets protesting it. They're burning down fucking phone masts. Yeah, and at least verbally, if not physically, assaulting engineers who are out in the street working on, you know, telephone boxes and so on. It it does seem like there are people in the world that whatever, you know, if you just sit down and think of the craziest thing you can think of, there are probably people out in the world that think things and believe things that aren't that dissimilar to, you know, like truth being stranger than fiction my friend died and uh, I think she's been taken up on a spaceship and it's following a comet and we all need to kill ourselves so we can join her on the spaceship. I mean, how much crazier does it get? I'm sorry if that offends anybody, but to me, <laughs> that seems pretty crazy. Yeah. On the other hand, maybe it's true. Maybe it's true. What can I do? I think that train left the station back in the 90s with uh, the rest of Heaven's Gate. Well, but I mean, like you say, Scott, when I look at those things... 
and particularly, I guess, the more mainstream, what we'd call the more mainstream religions and, you know, some of the more extreme cults. And you think, well, there are people that believe that with all their heart. And I have an opinion about it that is in total opposition. You know, what about the things I believe? You know, what about the um, mm. you know, left wing, right wing, capitalist system, all those things that that seem like definite things and we have opinions about them you know about i don't know just like mundane things like national health service or things like that we have you know definite beliefs about those things although they seem kind of different to me but are they different i don't know and if you went back like hundreds of years or thousands of years to the egyptian empire you know people would have believed in a very different kind of uh, worldview and that was real to them i guess so just i guess what i'm saying is it just makes me wonder all those things that I totally believe and I think are totally true, have I got the wool over my eyes? I don't think I have, but maybe I have. And I think one thing the internet has changed is that it's exposed us to a wide variety of these sort of fringe or extreme beliefs. So we see a lot more of them now. And it's possibly easy to fearmonger a bit and say that the internet is responsible for a lot of these things. I mean, it certainly makes it easier for people with fringe beliefs to get together and, and mm. share them. And I think that's led to a, a strange new form of cult, a sort of decentralized cult, almost a peer-to-peer -peer cult, like you know the anti-vax movement. But at the same time, I don't think it's fundamentally changed the nature of uh, sort of extreme beliefs like that, that they've always been around. What what we see now with the internet is that they're just more visible. Uh, that there's you know a bigger smorgasbord of them that we can choose from. Either you know if we're looking for something to believe ourselves, or you know if we're looking for <laughs> as as scenario writers inspiration for strange beliefs that we can work into our scenarios. Yeah, I keep thinking of trying to do a pastafarian scenario at some point. <laughs> How many noodly appendages references can I get in? Well, I think in an earlier episode, didn't you suggest that Yog sothoth was uh, a form of the flying spaghetti monster or vice versa? <laughs> <laughs> he did indeed boil for our sins. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. There's the basis for your cult, Matt. <sighs> Take it and run. But there was an article I stumbled across on the internet when I was doing some research, which I, I shared with the two of you, which I thought might be an interesting structure to talk about uh, the types of cult belief. It was written by a guy called Joshua Kennan, who yeah, he's, he's just a guy with a blog. He's written some books on politics and, and finance. He's not really, as far as I can tell, any kind of expert in this. But he's done some interesting analysis sort of breaking down different types of cults through history into broad categories. It's not authoritative, but I thought from a scenario point of view, at least gave us something to work with and, and also a way of understanding the types of beliefs of some real world cults. So he starts off with the fertility cult. I mean, this is pretty much the basis of folk horror, isn't it? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's quite a primeval kind of um, concept. It's just an excuse to get naked and fuck. That's what they really say. <laughs> <laughs> well, sort, sort of. The way he defines fertility cults, I think this is something that we tend to see historically more than perhaps in the modern day. The idea that reproduction is vital, that you want to spread your numbers, you know, grow your, your cult. But that said, I, 
There is that movement in the US, isn't there? What's it called? The Is it the Quiverful movement or something like that? It's an evangelical Christian movement that is basically a fertility cult. The idea, I mean, it's sort of, I think, based in a variant of the Great Replacement Theory, uh, which you see conspiracy theorists espouse. So the Great the great Replacement Theory is something that white nationalists are particularly worried about. The fact that people from other races are outbreeding white people and, and that white people are having sex or reproducing with people from other races. And this is somehow replacing or destroying the white race. And this is you know, a huge part of white nationalism. The Quiverful Movement if I remember correctly, is sort of like a Christian equivalent to that. It's the idea that people from other religions are coming to dominate the world, and therefore it is the responsibility of evangelicals basically to have as many kids as they can, you know, to try to outbreed the opposition. Right. Yes, yes. I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> it's just completely weird. You also have the opposite with some cults who abstain from sex and don't kind of procreate and it's like mm. well you haven't really got a very good business model there that's not going to last too long is it really <laughs> just not thought that through um yeah no if you want new members then uh procreation is probably the way to go and of course this all seems to be tied in with agriculture as well so i mean this is probably mm. less of a thing in the in the modern day but if you think to the betrayal of the cult and the wicked man for example that was very much sort of human sexuality and you know the cycle of of uh crops and the cycle of animal husbandry and so on all being related and interlinked you know, magically really yeah and i mean back in history it would have been and the major concern would have been you know weather and failing crops and so on because that's how you live through the winter is storing you know the harvest so you know having a blessing on your crops whether that be sacrifice of some sort or you know whatever it may be that's pretty damned important and from a call of cthulhu point of view i mean, this is ripe territory for cults of shibni girath and this is totally I, I mean not necessarily all what they're about but pretty much all what they're about you could probably argue on, yeah. the, on the other hand it's also maybe uh, Yidra as well because genetics and such is quite a big part of her shtick mm. my mind kind of goes to more like dark ages or you know more historical Roman settings or you know those kind of more historical settings where this would have been more of a direct concern to small communities certainly where you've got smaller or more isolated communities you know it is very much life and death Thinking back to the episode we did on the witch, that whole idea of the family in isolation trying to survive, that, all right, the reproduction there may not be uh, the human reproduction, but it is still almost like a fertility cult, of, you know, a small family-based fertility cult, and they have suddenly become wholly dependent on the livestock and crops that they can raise. And this is tied in very much with their religion. It just strikes me as weird that they'd be able to do anything in The Witch because they wouldn't be able to see a thing with all that black screen. <laughs> Another one on the list that Joshua Kennan's identified is the Death Cult. Now, these have uh, got prime for exploitation in, in scenarios. I mean, they are your stereotypical, hey, I'm going to run around in a, in a robe and kill everyone slasher style. But I can't really think of anyone real-world examples, at least definitely nothing modern anyway. Oh, gosh. Oh, there are plenty, it, because it depends how you define a death cult. 
So obviously, you know, you've got things like Heaven's Gate and and so on. The definition of a death cult that he's using is one where death is a form of transformation. It's a way of moving beyond that human existence is somehow corrupt, debased. Uh, the material world is, and that our salvation comes after death or through the process of death. I wouldn't exactly argue that Heaven's Gate were a death cult other than maybe in its very last moments of existence because up until that point they were very much a a philosophical group they were they were definitely seeking something beyond uh, normal existence but mm. it wasn't until the, the the last phase of their of their teachings that they really embraced the idea of hey death can mean that we escape our vessels and return to the mothership but for 30 odd years before that that was very far from what they preached mm. Well, I think the idea of a death cult as well is very heavily tied in with the idea of eschatology, the idea that we are approaching the end times or there is a, an apocalypse looming that will transform the world and the, will take us from one mode of existence to another, whether this is the second coming, the rapture, whether this is some kind of earthly apocalypse, whether this is a mass suicide of event. But it's just the idea that things are coming to an end and that we need to prepare ourselves for this spiritually. And in Call of Cthulhu, I mean, I always struggled that a little with humans worshipping deities who are going to bring about the end of the world. You know, where's mm. my investment as a human in that? You know, am I winning favour with a god that's going to eat me and then I don't exist anymore? Because if you take that Lovecrafty and very materialistic view... Do the, but do the cultists have that view? I'm guessing they don't. They think they're going to live on, you know, at the feet of the deity in their cosmic court or something like that. Or are they going to be kind of chosen ones who are allowed to carry on living? I don't know. But I think it doesn't have to be, when I talk about real, like real in the fiction. It, but I'm, I'm kind of interested in getting in the cultists' mm. head as to why are they worshipping this deity and helping them facilitating their the deities bringing about the end of the world you know what what's in it for them um so i mean the heaven's gate people they were like i said they were going to get on a spaceship and, and fly off so i can see the the motivation there because they're not their physical bodies are dying but their spirits are going to live on i think it also determines by what you define the end of the world is and i had this uh, thought in the back of my mind when i was developing the idol of cthulhu scenario and the way I latched onto it was very much a literal interpretation of what Castro's testimony was in the Call of Cthulhu story, that it was just the complete end of society as we know it, that it was the end of our way of lives. I mean, the human race will still exist, but it'll be, re it'll be reveling in blood and in killing and new ways of, new ways of existence. I think it's some people in, in that term, the, uh, the Cthulhu cult, would embrace a complete destruction of the world as we know it in terms of its social structure, but not as if suddenly you have a Death Star moment of the Earth being blown into a million smithereens and cast out into space, but just a completely different way of existence. Mm. Yeah. No, that makes sense, yeah. But also there is the idea of sacrifice and self-sacrifice, that if you identify a movement or a belief or a deity or something is greater than yourself, a greater good or a greater purpose, and your life or the, even the lives of other individuals as being somehow lesser than that, then death, your death or the deaths of others becomes a tool towards that end. So 
Let's say in the case of the worship of the Great Old One, you may not be expecting to get anything out of your sacrifice or, or the sacrifice of others. You're, this isn't a transaction, that this is just something so much greater than yourself that you know, you're nothing to it, no one else is anything to it. And if you die in service of it, well, that's that's just the natural order of things, isn't it? I hope to at least give the great old one 10 magic points if I got cart, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, again, it's like I'm sort of arguing that I should be able to understand the rationale of the cultist mind. But as you say, Scott, that reason may be, you know, to paraphrase, pretty crazy in itself. It doesn't have to stand up to too much logic, I guess. Well, I think you see some of this in perhaps uh, political cults as well. The idea of a fairly extreme example, suicide bombers. So, but yeah, I, I understand. In the case of a classic Islamic extremist suicide bomber, they're expecting a reward in the afterlife. But you do get secular terrorists. I mean, if we go back to, say, the Red Army faction, who basically performed not suicide bombings, but acts that they had no real chance of, of surviving in pursuit of political aims. Hmm. I mean, I suppose, I'm not sure if this is the case for them, but I suppose there is also the the almost heroic act of carrying out a, something for a political cause or something such as that with an, in the knowledge that, you know, I would do something like that if my family were under threat, perhaps, and I knew that by sacrificing myself, you know, I would save them, you know, so it's, you know, I'd like to think I would, um, you know, so there's, there's that idea of self-sacrifice, but, you know, for someone else that you love, which, you know, mm, not, not yes. the, 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 you know, the ultimate heavenly reward for yourself or anything like that, set that to one side, but, um, so I can kind of see that. And by extension, it's fairly easy to see that working as a rationale for killing other people as well. Yeah, yeah. And then the third one on the list, we have the something called the Prosperity Cult. Yeah, yeah, this is one that fascinates me, the idea that the cult is offering you effectively rewards in this life. So it's, it's almost like flipping the death cult on its head. With the death cult, it's you do everything so that you'll get your reward after death. But here it's you do everything so that you get your reward in this life. We see this, I think, primarily in the modern day with the prosperity gospel, which is something that just constantly appalls me which is this really corrupt form of evangelical Christianity that basically promises that you will gain financial rewards. So, for example, you know, I can't remember his name, but there was this, this evangelical preacher in the U.S. who, I mean, for a start, was preaching that the more money you have, the more indication that is that God loves you, so therefore wealth is equivalent to holiness. It's, it's like a scoring system. And that he was trying to convince his parishioners, yeah, he was a televangelist, so he was going out to quite a large audience, to send him money so that he could buy something like his third private jet. And he was 
couching it in terms of it doesn't matter if you know you're, you're sending me all the money you have that if you can't make your rent payment or mortgage payment as a result of this or if you have to clean out your children's college fund or whatever you know send this to me so i can buy this jet and you will be rewarded your act of sacrifice here means that god will reward you and you shall receive your money back through other means threefold or whatever this is such a complete perversion of everything Christianity is supposed to stand for that even as an, an apostate, this makes my blood boil. The more you spend now, the more you are saved in your next life. I, I remember God, Gilbert Shelton doing this effectively as a parody in the fabulous Furry Freak Brothers donkeys years ago, where Phineas Freak accidentally becomes a cult leader that basically is the prosperity gospel. Back in the 70s, or whenever it was that he wrote this, it just seemed like absolute ludicrous parody. And mm. now it's, it's a mainstream religion. Well, as I said, whatever nutty thing you can think of, chances are it's out there somewhere, or it will be. Do you think this is almost like a debased form of a fertility cult? I think it's exploitation of the existing belief system. Personally, I've got, I've got quite a cynical viewpoint on the whole thing yeah I, I think you're totally right matt i think it's that's it's more about exploitation yeah of um you know people who it seems to me a lot of these people who are giving their money don't actually have very much to give oh yeah you know and it is exploiting their their desire or there's somebody who's got a lot of money i could be like them so it's that kind of aspirational thing and like by sacrificing they're, they're giving something up and they think that's a good thing to do and it can be a good thing to do but it's very misdirected i think Sadly, there is a very influential and, and wealthy multi-level marketing company, or was otherwise known as a pyramid scheme, that you know is very respectable. Has you know, has actually got its some some fairly high-powered members of the American government involved now, but the various anti-cult networks have have sort of focused on them as being very cult-like in their recruiting techniques and their yeah. conditioning techniques. Yeah, the, this whole idea of having to adopt a philosophy in order to sort of sell these these products and and buy into an ethos and sort of subsume your personality and the whole thing. I was, I think, we're not going to say what it's called, but I think if, if I'm thinking of what you're thinking of, I was a member of that for a while. So can I tell you a bit about what happened? Yeah, please do. I don't know if I've told you this before, but yeah, we were up in, in Leeds. Uh, we were living up there. Uh, we were just i think we were just married we were living you know, we just stopped being students so we didn't have much money or maybe even we were still students i can't recall and i get a phone call from a guy at a, a, a sports club that i was going to you know there was a bit of socializing and so i knew this guy a bit you know we'd been to a bar or whatever and, and he rings me up one day and says hi paul and i don't know that he's reading from a script but he is. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And it's like, oh, hi, are you interested in making, you know, a bit of a business, earning a bit of extra money, something like that? You know, it's a it's a well-crafted thing. You know, obviously what I'm saying sounds terrible and unconvincing, but it's the, the nub of it was, do you want to make a bit of money on the side? No string, I don't know, no strings attached. It didn't sound sinister. It sounded quite intriguing. And I hadn't got much money at the time. And I was like, yeah okay all right steve we'll we'll come along and that's that was how it started and we went along to a meeting and you know you kind of told oh you know if you kind of 
sell these things you'll get some commission it's all good the products are really good and uh and you put a bit of money in and you've got like if you if you want you can get your money back within like 28 days oh okay so we'll put some uh, after a bit of sort of uh soul searching uh, me and lucy decided to put some money in i think it was like 50 quid which was you know it was quite a chunk at the time and we went to numerous meetings and one one funny incident was we were supposed to steve was introducing us to his like he had like a you know it basically it was that pyramid thing if you had a chain so mm. the guy that had recruited him everything that steve sells the guy that's recruited him would get a small percentage cut on what Steve sells and then the guy above that and so on. So, you know, if you can recruit people and then they recruit people and then they recruit people, you're looking at these numbers and thinking, wow, like in a year's time, I'll be making like 50 grand or whatever, you know, great. So uh, he says, oh, you know, if you go down to, um, I don't know what it was, like uh, Windmill Crescent, uh, and number seven, and uh, we'll meet this guy called Dave there and he's like, you know he'll he'll talk you through it and uh, and everything oh me and lucy like oh great so uh we turn up uh you know it's number seven we, we go in knock the door and there's this woman there and we hello we hit see dave oh right come in and uh he, he's in the shower right now but he'll be down in a sec oh thank you very much do you want some tea no we're all right and then um he comes down like drying his hair hello and we're like oh uh paul and lucy we're here to, to see you and he's like, no idea who we are. <laughs> we're we're not at Windmill Crescent. We're at Windmill Drive. <laughs> but it just so happens the guy's name's Dave. Um, <laughs> that was great. So, uh, and I I tried to recruit numerous people, but you know I was pretty shit at it. And the stuff that we were selling, you know, this was the thing. The stuff that we were selling, it was like mostly household products, right? Like washing liquid, washing up liquid, and all all manner of stuff. And you were, they were telling you this is really cheap because it's like concentrated and it's better than the stuff that you get, you know, in, in Tesco. And you're looking at it thinking, no, it's not. It's more expensive. Oh no, no, it's cheaper. Is it? Oh, okay. But it's like, it's it's clearly not. But somehow they convince themselves it is. That's really quite cultish. The other, Yeah, totally, totally. You know, th this whole insular thing that you can only trust what the people within the organisation are telling you, and you'll hear voices from outside that will try to convince you. Mm. Uh, these the, you know, these are uh, voices that are trying to corrupt you. They're trying to lead you astray from the one true path, yeah. Yeah, don't talk to those people. Yeah. And there was like lots of motivational uh, cassettes at the time, I remember, you know, uh, oh, wow. like speakers of uh, telling you, you know, basically kind of new age kind of. Um, or I remember, I've, I think I've still got a copy of Make Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie on my shelf oh, yes. somewhere. That was that was marketed through them. Yeah. And it, it, in the end, you know, the deadline was coming up and uh, we'd put quite a lot of time and meetings and stuff into it. And I was just getting disillusioned. I'm like, Lucy, should we just ask for our money back? And we did. And I think we got our money back. Oh, wow. Um, and we got out of it. Huh. I mean, I never felt like under threat, like I was joining a cult, as, as in my understanding of cult. But I can see how it, you know, it definitely parallels to that. Yeah. And Matt, you, you, sorry, you mentioned in passing that you almost ended up working for this company. Way, 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 way back in the day uh, when I was uh, starting off just out from university. 
Matt, you don't go that way back in the day. I'm sorry. <laughs> it seems a long time from my perspective, at least. I, I don't want to gatekeep your like life, but you know. <laughs> uh, well, when I left university, I started off uh, in DTP, so doing desktop publishing. And I remember looking through various uh, like employment websites and like, job sites and so on, uh, looking for any work in a similar kind of, um, that used that particular skill set. And this company indeed did place an advert. And I think ironically, it ended up actually that their offices were across the road from where I eventually did get employed in a later job. Um, and essentially it was, uh, almost like an image archivist role where they wanted someone to, um, manage their database of all the images that will go into their catalogs and even potentially do some of the layout work on, on said catalogs. So it, it had been stuff that I'd been trained to do. So I thought, okay, it's, it's a job. It's money. I went, I think I went along for an interview. I mean, it's so long ago. I can't, I can't remember the exact specifics of it, but I remember I didn't get it and I wasn't too hmm. disheartened about it because I ended up getting something far better anyway. But hmm. yeah, that, that was my, my one brush with it. Have you had any other brushes with what you might consider to be Colts, Matt? Uh, I think that's probably it. Hmm. Um, I I lead such a fairly uneventful <laughs> life anyway. <laughs> so there's, I, mean, I, I don't see many people. I hardly ever leave the house, as, as it turns no, out. But- so I've got so much work. I don't get. I'm not in a. I'm not moving in so, enough sociable circles that I would encounter such things. I think. Yeah, I think that's that's a that's an interesting point actually. Mm. When when we consider how how cults recruit, you're probably not very high up no. the list of people likely to get recruited for that reason. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I, when they say one man is an island, I always cough and say, bullshit! I try my best every day. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, what you were talking about there with you know, the fact that you applied for a job there, I it does seem like, again, from a Call of Cthulhu point of view, if you think about, you know, cults offering fronts like that or having you know being embedded within respectable organizations yeah you could end up in the situation i think this would work quite well in a a modern day uh, setting Mm. where you you are just an office worker and you're you're beginning to rise up through the ranks and at some point you realize that perhaps yes this is a cult of nyarlathotep or yog sothoth and you know all the stuff you're doing is there sort of harvesting souls for your dark master bringing all these people in and you you've just been doing the paperwork all this time (laughs) (laughs) i did have an idea for that actually for a cult with a with a k that is um, scenario revolving around one of the minor gods, because <laughs> there there is one all about the acquisition of greed and so on. So, number four on the list, which really seems to get—I mean, the previous one, the prosperity one—it seems like that's exploitation, and and there's some cultish things about it. It doesn't seem so much a cult to me. Whereas the next one really speaks of like cult activities, and I can see this being a, a thing in Call of Cthulhu, the blood cult. I mean, you're halfway to the bloody tongue, aren't you? <laughs> it's in the name. <laughs> so I'm just going to quote a, a line from his um, from his blog article here. He's talking about there's a picture, which is quite shocking, of uh, two guys holding a sheep, a uh, half-grown sheep, uh, with its throat cut above a pit in the ground, which is probably about 
three foot deep and there's one two three four five about six seven people stood in the pit in their underwear and they're kind of draining the blood from the sheep over these people in this kind of earthen pit um, in a kind of a you know outdoor rural scene and he says that they take a lamb slice open its throat stand in a pit and cover themselves in the bodily fluids from the murder it's deranged his words <laughs> my words too but yeah but the thing is that this metaphorically runs all the way through christianity the whole idea of being washed clean of the blood of the lamb is there as a metaphor for salvation in christianity and I, I wonder whether i don't know enough about this to know whether what you just described there is a practice that came along afterwards that is meant to be a literal reading of that or whether the metaphor was born out of real practices in the middle east uh, but yeah th that whole idea of being washed clean by blood having your sins washed away by blood is an essential part of christianity is just in that case the blood is metaphorical I mean, certainly in the Old Testament, there are animal sacrifices, as I recall. Um, perhaps not literally like this, but yeah. This hadn't occurred to me as a separate thing than death cults, but there are certainly plenty of practices that involve uh, the spilling of blood, but not death. So like self-flagellation. Or I don't know if it still goes on. I remember seeing documentary footage years ago of Easter celebrations or Good Friday celebrations in the Philippines, where certain very pious people would actually have themselves crucified as a form of religious devotion. Uh, obviously, they'd, they'd be taken down again before they died from it. I mean, you say, obviously. But they would actually have nails rammed through their wrists in order to put themselves up on the cross. Well, I mean, he goes on in the article to list a whole bunch of uh, things that are actually far worse, subjectively, far worse than what, you know, the thing with the sheep blood in the pit. People like cutting themselves at big mm. ceremonies and so on. I mean, it, it all kind of gets a bit s and M, I I think, but... Yeah, this is definitely yeah. a pain fixation in my eyes. It's horrible. Yeah, I mean, I, I do wonder, yeah, whether you're right there, Paul, whether there is a sexual element to this or... I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't argue too strongly the sexual element, but the, yeah. but no, I, I kind of did say that. But I was thinking more of the gratification from self-harm and so on um, and, you know, bloodletting and so on is a, a very kind of primitive urge, you know, and the sight of blood is very uh, significant, you know, to no. us psychologically. I think I'm no psychological expert, but, you know, it's, it's like clearly is. Uh, and I know, I mean, I've known someone who just when blood was discussed they fainted yeah so you know any of this would they will not be listening to this if they were <laughs> listening to this they would have either turned off or they'd be on flat out on the floor right now or skipping about 10 minutes on <laughs> yeah but yeah blood is the purest representation of our life of our life force of our life essence and so mm. you know sacrificing it is a way of sacrificing or sharing our lives and the spilling of the blood of others and of other animals is a way of of letting that life force out or using it in a sacrificial means I can certainly see that an awful lot in Call of Cthulhu. Either. The other aspect of it, which you know ties in a little bit with the, the next entry, uh, which is the self-denial cult, is this whole idea of the mortification of the flesh. 
which is a, a fairly essential part of Catholic belief and you know, certainly a, a lot of other religions. And I think we saw it, you know, for example, in the self-castration in the, um, the Heaven's Gate cult, which is this whole idea of trying to transcend physicality, trying to transcend our flesh by showing that it is unimportant by you know, perhaps inflicting pain through self-flagellation, through self-castration, through starvation, through sleep deprivation, whatever, this way of sort of saying, I am not this body. To quote our Lord and Saviour, Salad Fingers, I like it when the red water comes out. <laughs> but I think the self-denial thing, I mean, that's very common. In I'm not sure if it includes this, but this is what it puts me in mind of, is of like restricted diets, uh, mm. particular regimes of sleeping, particular regimes of sexual conduct or who you can talk to. You know, basically things that are imposed well, I was going to say imposed on you, imposed on you that you willingly take on that restrict what you can do. And I think almost all cults have that. And that's very common. You know, you can't talk to those people anymore. You can't mm. eat that anymore. You need to do these exercises. You need to do this. You need to do that. And it's about denying yourself and self-discipline and also the guilt that's felt when you inevitably don't follow it, I think. Well, I think there's another element as well, which is a lot of these things also come into mystical practices. So, you know, when you start getting into even things like Buddhism or Sufism or you know, any form of mystical religion, that there are certain exercises that through forms of self-denial, whether it's you know, sleep deprivation, starvation, great exertion or whatever, produce an altered state of consciousness that is supposed to bring you closer to God. Uh, or closer to some form of cosmic union. And I see perhaps, you know, elements of that self-denial as being part of that. That and, and I think this is perhaps a tool that some cults use, that as well as making you more pliable, if you starve someone, if you over-exercise them, if you deny them sleep, um, you know, if uh, at the same time as teaching them certain meditation practices and so on, that they'll start having experiences that they'll see as being transcendent, as being religious experiences. Yeah, 100%. One of the groups I looked at was the Buddha Field. Um, oh, yes. There was that documentary, Holy Hell. One of the things they, they had a bunch of, he had a bunch of people, uh, the leader, uh, Michelle, and this was back in the mid 80s i think and the group had been you know like a few dozen people in california and they're down on the beach and they're talking about how they would have religious experiences and how michelle would sort of talk to them and lead them through practices and they'd do lots of um you know kind of surrendering things to the group you know physically and, and mentally and sort of opening themselves up and that's all well and good and i can kind of you know, understand that. But they very much recounted these experiences of seeing flashing lights and colours and hearing mm. sounds, basically hallucinating, right? Very tangibly and very powerfully, you know, I don't think they were taking LSD. I don't think they were taking drugs. They were just entering an LSD-like state. And yeah, I get that that can happen. But for that to actually happen to multiple people, I think is incredible. 
Well, I think a big part of that as well is priming them. If you tell them mm. that this is going to happen while you're putting them into a suggestible state, I mean, in the same way as, as you prime yourself if you're taking psychedelic drugs, you know, the, the idea of set and setting, the expectations you go into this with and the immediate environment, what people are telling you and talking to you about will greatly shape your experience. And I think that applies to mystical experiences as well. I think it'll shape it, but, you know... To actually see those colours and those things to happen, I, I just think is pretty remarkable. I, I don't know. It doesn't seem so surprising to me, but that's because I used to practice ritual magic. I used to try to put myself into altered states of consciousness, not using drugs through various techniques, uh, through setting my own expectations, through you know group ritual workings with other people. And yeah, I, I, I have no doubts about how pliable or suggestible the human consciousness is in those respects mm. yeah i think the difference between something like ritual magic is this is something you are trying to do to yourself in the expectation that you will achieve a particular result it's something that you're trying to control whereas if it's being used as part of cult indoctrination or cult programming then it's something that you're almost being tricked into or at least is being imposed on you not sure I see a difference. It's what you expect to get out of it, what you believe the experience is. So that if if I were to perform magical working that would put me into a particularly altered state of consciousness, then I'd expect that as a result of the magical working. When I came out of it, I'd know that that was because I had performed a certain series of techniques that I conducted myself to try to produce this. Whereas if I went along to say something like this, this beach event that you're talking about, and someone walked me through an exercise and said, right, okay, we're, we're going to see God, or we're going to see, you know, an angel or something like that, and did all that, then I'd see that as perhaps a reinforcement of the beliefs that I was being exposed to as, as almost kind of proof. Well, I think that's just a question of, time to some degree it's just that you didn't go along and do a magical work in one saturday afternoon never having done any of it before no um and the same going along to the beach you know they'd been in the group for several years so it's it's that, that same sort of setup of expectations and there was something that that was more familiar to me that, that Mich i can't remember if it's michelle or Mi i'm gonna i'm gonna call it um michelle um that, that he did was that he would um go up to the the believers his, his cultists if you like and like touch them on the forehead and they would kind of fall backwards in a state of ecstasy just like you know we see in evangelical churches yeah. look to me you know very much a parallel experience it's basically a form of hypnosis yeah a kind of self-hypnosis almost isn't it of, of a willingness to kind of give i think there's a lot of probably a lot of pleasure to be found in that of that totally mm. giving up of yourself to 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 somebody else's influence and to you know to, to let yourself sort of enter into that state i can see it would be very probably cathartic you know absolutely yeah the skeptic in me wonders how many of those would be plants in that kind of situation to get the whole thing going that you would have those few, first few that go and really overact the whole situation and then others get brought in by that setting the scene. Yeah, like the whole, you know, get up from your wheelchair, your legs are fixed kind yeah. of thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there is some of that. 
Yeah, I, I think in that case, yes. But in terms of the immediate sort of visceral reaction, what Paul was talking about with sort of laying a hand on someone's forehead and them suddenly having an ecstatic experience and suddenly feeling like they're cured of this, you know, huge sense of well-being. But yeah, or, or suddenly starting to speak in tongues or something like that. I don't think mm. this is something people consciously put on. It's something they've been primed to do by things they've observed in others, but it's something I think that happens very spontaneously. Yeah, that's what I'm saying is that how much of that would be maybe the first, if you had a line of people that all engage in this, hmm. maybe the first one or two are plants to help set that mood and then bring that, uh, bring about that, res- um, that response in the others down the line. Yeah. When you go out, if everybody else is wearing a hat, you'd probably wear a hat too. Mm hmm. Do you remember that psychological study that was done ages ago? And I think it was used as a kind of shtick on candid camera back in the 1950s about testing conformity, where uh, it was all about people getting into lifts. Yeah, obviously, the majority of people, when they get into a lift, you know, turn around and they face the doors. We're assuming there's just one set of doors. But mm, the, mm. the study involved basically you'd set up a lift so that everyone in it was standing facing the back of the lift. And then, you know, the lift would go up to another floor. Someone else would get in. And almost invariably, they wouldn't do the standard thing of turning around facing the doors because everyone else is facing the back of the lift. They get in, they'd look around confused for a moment, and then they'd stand you know, the same way as everyone mm. else facing the back of the lift. Yeah, yeah. My, my normal experience with lifts is that I have to cram to get in because they're always overcrowded and it's, I end up going in any other direction other than what I want. And number six, this is like the, the um, chart countdown. Number six, <laughs> we have the unknown object or process cult. I love the unknown object. You you find the um, you know the the idol of Cthulhu, the unknown <laughs> object in your you know grandfather's closet or something. What's this old thing? And then all along it was just a paperweight. Yeah. This is the archetypal call of Cthulhu one, though, isn't it? This is sort of the cargo cult. This is, we have found something that we do not understand that is beyond our comprehension. Therefore, you know, it must have religious value, holy value. It must be something that is worthy of, of worship or at least forming a system belief around. Yeah. And and fundamentally, I mean, isn't that the vast majority of cults in Call of Cthulhu? Um, I'd just say they normally worship the the gods or uh, something that's living. I, I think there's only a few examples maybe of where they uh, worship an object. Maybe like, I think there's the one in Germany where they worship the stone that uh, Kaig is attached to. But even then, it's still got a god at the end of it. Mm. I think you're concentrating too much on the the object part of it. But, you know, it's, it's the processes, unknown process as well. So it's the idea that you know, the worship is built around something that is beyond comprehension. And in Call of Cthulhu, the idea is that these gods, their, their ways, everything is beyond human comprehension. The majority of cultists may never see any evidence that this god exists, but they may see, you know, these strange idols, they may have experiences of Cthulhu's dreams and stuff like that. This is still something sort of alien, something beyond comprehension that this belief system has accreted around. And I, I see that as having a lot of parallels with something like a cargo cult. Yeah, I think probably less so with the great old ones, but definitely other other entities out there. Because they, like, going back to Castro's testimony, that seems a pretty definitively laid down goal that they can understand and are working towards. So that doesn't strike me as being particularly unknowable. But other gods, like Kaiega, for instance, it's a big floating eye 
what the hell does it want? What is it? What can it do? That I can understand. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, even going back to the Cthulhu cult, you know, talking about what Castro said there, what evidence do we have that any of that is right? This is something humans have come to believe about the alien. Yeah, but it, it takes away that bit about it being unknowable, that's what I mean, is that they, they at least have some kind of understanding, even if it's one that they've put on something which they themselves have orchestrated to believe. No, but, but that's the point. It's not an understanding. Isn't that true for all the cults, Scott, that for all, all these different things, what, what proof do we have that the prosperity cult is true? What proof do we have that, you know, the death cult or the, you know, any of these things, the fertility one, we can sort of say, oh, you know, the crops, the crops came true. Hooray. Our sacrifice must have worked. The crops didn't come true. Boo. Our sacrifice didn't work. You know what? You know, you don't have physical proof for these things. No, but the Cthulhu one, I think, is a really interesting example in that respect, because we are just going by what Castro says there. But at no point hmm. has Cthulhu sort of come along to them all and said, yeah, hey, guys, here, here's what I want. Yeah, here's 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 my gospel. Here's my core tenets. Uh, I mean, they've they've had these maddening dreams, these images. They found this idol and they've created a belief system around it. Castro explains what these beliefs are, but these are something they've created. These are human beliefs. This isn't an alien religion that has been imposed on them. This is a, a system of beliefs that has arisen around something that fundamentally they don't understand. They say they understand it, but what evidence is there? You could flip that on its head and say, what evidence do we have that it wasn't given to explicitly by dreams that they have correctly understood um, without being subjected to the like, the source material, as it were, actually experiencing the dream of Cthulhu? I don't think you'd be able to verify one way or the other. But the dreams as they're laid out in the, the story don't convey information. The dreams that we see within the Call of Cthulhu story, the ones that the artists, the theosophists, and the various people are having, you know, the, these are not, you know, he, here is some information that's being conveyed to you. This is just something really weird that is filling their head and changing their thought processes, but it's not clear information that's being conveyed. Again, only in those dreams there may be others. We don't know. But, you know, this is you extrapolating. I'm talking about what's actually in the story. Again, I'm, I'm kind of reading in between the lines here, but it's it's trying to prove a point that it's, there is a, they have a, a way of understanding or at least a way of explaining the goal. What, I, what I'm arguing is this is exactly what we're talking about here with this you know, unknown object or process cult, that this is what humans do. We try to find meaning in things. This is the way we make sense of the world. And if there isn't meaning to be found, or if it's something that's beyond our comprehension, that doesn't stop us trying it. And, and we still believe those tales that we tell ourselves about the unknowable absolutely. I mean, would you say then, Scott, on that argument, every single uh, religious... Uh, religion on earth is is a unknown object and process cult that's a really interesting question and one you could probably have some fairly hot debates about i'd say for example christianity would be you know an interesting counter to that because you have jesus at the center of it who you know if you follow the tenets of christianity is god made flesh is there you know, to explain to the people in human terms what it is, what is God's will. So, you know, this is God speaking to us directly. So I'd say in that case, no, that's pretty much the opposite of it. 
But in Call of Cthulhu, we actually, you know, the narrator actually sees Cthulhu. He's physically there, definitely. He sees Cthulhu, but who, who the hell knows what Cthulhu wants? We've, we've got these cults that have made assumptions. I mean, Castro's... Castro talks about the cult's beliefs, but, you know, that's not something that has been laid down to them personally by Cthulhu, the way the tenets of Christianity have within the New Testament by Jesus. This is something that people have come up with them, for themselves as a way of, of interpreting this alien presence in their lives. They're, they're two very, very different things. Hmm. Yeah, I get. I guess it depends whether you are. Yeah. Well, I mean, it all depends whether you consider Christ to be God made manifest in human form. If if he is, then you know, there's no mystery there. This is the word of God. This isn't us trying to interpret the ineffable. This is the ineffable telling us exactly what he wants. Yeah, I can kind of see that. Yeah, so I mean, in other in other mythos stories, we could have mythos entities actually turning up and speak. You know, if Nalathep yeah. turns up on our doorstep and actually tells us stuff, then that that would be different, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or even perhaps to some extent the Dunwich Horror, because you know Wilbur Wakeley yeah. is at least the child of Yogg-Sothoth and has got a, an inherent understanding of what his father wants. It's not like some yeah. rando turning up, sort of saying, "Oh yeah, yeah, I, you know, here's Yogg-Sothoth. This is clearly what he wants from me. I shall do this," without ever actually having any direct connection with him. And let's uh, move on to the final one, number seven, the personality cult. Um, I think this is something we're a term that we're all pretty familiar with um and something that most cults are centered around a person a personality but is that what we mean by a personality cult yes and no like you say i mean there's an element of a personality cult in almost every cult because by definition the kinds of cults we're talking about are ones that are founded by charismatic leaders hmm but personality cults are interesting because you know in a lot of cases they are not religious things. I mean, in a lot of cases, they're political ones. And so, you know, like the personality cults have built up around various authoritarian leaders from, you know, Stalin to Hitler to uh, Colonel Gaddafi. You know, they, they're not, you know, religious cults, but in a lot of cases, they function in very similar ways. But I wonder also, in some ways, in some respects, when we talk about personality cult, if we're using the word cult, a bit like we talk about cult books or cult films, that they have a strong following that lots of people follow. They're not really like a destructive cult like you know the most of the cults that we're talking about with respect to Call of Cthulhu. There are, I'd say, borderline cases. It becomes really difficult to tell when you're talking about politics because clearly you're having to cut through a lot of propaganda and political opinion and, and disinformation and stuff like that. But if you go into a lot of the weirder stories that are told about the Kim dynasty in North Korea, for example, you know, a lot of that really does sort of map on quite nicely to the kinds of cults we've been talking about. There was an article I 
I came across from the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong, where they were talking about the various things that have been ascribed to the, the Kim dynasty over the years. The really difficult thing here is they say that this is stuff that's come from the North Korean news agency, mm. but whether or not it's been filtered through the South Korean government and they've been trying to create stories to discredit the North Koreans even further, it's, I, I really don't know. But they were talking about, you know, Kim Jong-un uh, working with North Korean scientists to formulate a miracle drug made of ginseng and rare earth elements that with one injection could cure AIDS, Ebola, cancer, heart disease, impotence, the common cold, harm from use of computers, epilepsy, hepatitis, venereal disease and aging. And it also apparently somehow renders you anti-radioactive. Sorry, is this Kim Jong Un or Donald Trump we're talking about? <laughs> I get the yeah. two. I don't. I get. I get confused about this. It's ginseng, not hydroxychloroquine. But mm. it still can't save you from the dumb. <laughs> but they talked about how Kim Jong Un, you know, could learn to drive at the age of three and was competitive sailor at the age of nine. <laughs> yeah, Kim Jong Il learned to walk at three weeks old and once shot a round of golf that included eleven holes in one. That he could also control the weather. And there was uh, th this whole story that uh, went around a few years back about um, Kim Jong-un and North Korean archaeologists supposedly uncovering a unicorn's lair in North Korea. Oh, that, yeah. You know, somehow lent legitimacy to through old myths to the, the Kim regime. If you take yeah. this stuff as being true, which you know, I take it with a fairly big grain of salt, but if you take it as cr uh, true... How is that different from, you know, considering it's all built around a personality and that it's, you know, there is supposedly indoctrination and mind control and so on. How is that different from the kinds of cults we've been talking about? I mean, I would see it as different in that it's an aspect of the kind of cults that we see. So like if we talk about Charles Manson, then, you know, he had that kind of thing with his followers, right? They they kind of mm -hmm. saw he he encouraged them and um one can kind of use the word brainwashed if you want but he he conditioned them to sort of think that he was like the son of god man's son um you know that was no coincidence that he's called that and uh and then they did all these terrible things for him but it seems like a more closer relationship that there's there's a a, a smaller, tighter group. I think once you get onto a national level, I, I guess you know there are parallels. There are that kind of cult thing, but but there, you know, there were people in that, that fought for countries that would willingly die uh, because of a, a belief that that was what they should do. And you could argue that, that is, you know, as much as the people that were in Charles Manson's cult would almost lay down lay down their life for him because that was what they saw was the right thing to do. So. I think there's a lot of grey areas with what's a cult and what isn't. But I think when we talk about, you know, to me, we're talking about destructive cults and those tend to be stereotypically a few dozen people or a few hundred people, maybe a few thousand, based around one figure who's usually ever sort of puts them for sales forward as some sort of religious figure. And that, that seems a, a good parallel to a kind of Call of Cthulhu setup to me. I don't necessarily hold that there has to be the religious aspect. I've mentioned them a few times. I think the Red Army faction, the Bart-Meinhof group, 
do meet a lot of the hallmarks of a cult, and they, in that case, gathered around two charismatic figures that they had uh, this real us-and-them mentality. They were very mission-based. They had beliefs that to the outside world would seem very deluded, that you know, they, you know, their process of indoctrination for young and impressionable members bordered on brainwashing. How is that different from a cult? Oh, yeah, I can see that. Going, going back to when I watched the Bardem-Heinoff Complex, the film, the, the closing line in there, I think, very much lends weight to there is, don't remember them how they weren't, which was very much, they almost had this this myth mythology built up around mm-hmm. them where, they, where, where they're idolised. And again, that uh, example you mentioned in the previous uh, episode of almost aspiring the leader or the founder of the organisation to have performed these almost godlike uh, feats. Admittedly, Bard Vada and Meinhof didn't do anything quite on that, on that scale, but they were held in the same kind of, uh, or held up on that same kind of pedestal where they were idolized. But I guess once you start saying that you've got this individual that you're idolizing that has done things that are beyond human, then that mystical religious thing starts to come in, doesn't it? It's not just like, I mean, it's mm. not just like, oh, we think this person's great. You know, like I don't know, worshiping Elvis or something. You know, you know, putting somebody on a pedestal and thinking, "Oh, they're fantastic." It's kind of beyond that. It's adding a, a mystical element. In in a way, I think political cults and terrorist groups maybe are running in parallel to. They're they're operating a similar kind of method, but I don't really see the the whole mysticism angle coming into it. They're they're promoting mm. very different ends rather than religious. That's my question, really. I mean, would you say like the IRA? Or a cult? I, I mean, I wouldn't. No, no. But I you think know. the Red Army faction was something quite different uh, than, say, the IRA, in that they were gathered round these two charismatic leaders. That they were very insular. That they recruited young, vulnerable people, um, you know, steeped them in ideology, created this great us against them mentality. Were quite controlling over the way they lived. You know, the, these are all things that coercive cults do, and they may not have espoused mm. a religious philosophy. It may have been all political philosophy, but fundamentally, yeah, they worked like a cult. Mm. And similarly, say the Symbionese Liberation Army, what they did when they kidnapped Patty Hearst and you know, put her through a whole bunch of conditioning techniques, and basically, you know, she developed you know the mother of all cases of Stockholm syndrome, and ended up accompanying them on various bank robberies and the like. That that has got a lot of parallels to cult recruitment, albeit a a much more drastic version in which they started off by kidnapping her. But beyond that, the the conditioning processes are perhaps whole different from you know what a lot of really destructive cults do it seems like we're saying they're cult-like yeah i don't know if it helps our discussion to say they're cults well i think it does a bit if we're think- thinking of it in terms of call of cthulhu because the cults that we see in call of cthulhu don't necessarily have to be inherently religious so you know when you've got modern interpretations of say the brotherhood of the black pharaoh that are treated as terrorist cults basically uh, you know as as terrorist groups there's something almost quite secular the sort of the religious aspect is gone uh, to a large extent that they are there to create political terror and chaos. Well, that that may be a faction of them, but surely at their root, 
they're the Brotherhood of the Black Pharaoh, which is a you know a mystical religious mythos a root for them. They're not a they're not at heart a political organization. They may be using that to further their ends, uh, you know, in a scenario. But I don't think you'd. I I mean I can't quite imagine just working a purely political organization or a purely you know terrorist organization with political ends solely that being you know without any connection to mythos mysticism or anything in a in a call of cthulhu scenario would that would that fit not solely but the idea that you could have a cell a terrorist cell perhaps gathered around a leader that is part of this larger organization that people have joined it for political purposes maybe you know they're unhappy about the presence of an american military base in their country mm. or perhaps that they, they've been drawn together to fight income inequality or something like that that they have a fundamental political motivation but yeah, this is a tool that is being used to sow chaos, and it is part of a a larger organization that perhaps the members of it, as they advance within the organization or learn more, realize that there is this mystical motivation behind the whole thing. Because I mean, this is something that real cults do the whole time. This whole idea of sort of levels or gradual revelations that you mm. you may come along thinking that you're joining a a knitting group. The next thing you know, you're performing blood sacrifices under the full moon uh, and screaming out the names of uh, fallen gods. Hang on, that's not involved in the normal knitting process? What? Is that, is that same old story we hear again and again? <laughs> I thought it was knitting. It was devil worship. Yeah, we've all been there. I've seen someone make the parallel that knitting is a form of witchcraft. It's just waving wands around and all of a sudden, holy shit, there's a jumper! Thank you. Well, it is that time once again when we thank all the lovely people who listen to our podcast and slowly draw them deeper into the cult of the good friends of Jackson Elias. Of course, once you've started listening to the podcast, to gain access to the deeper knowledge within, one has to start perhaps funding us on Patreon. For a dollar per episode, you can gain access to the initial secrets. So you can hear our special backer-only episodes with the hidden knowledge in them and gain our sacred writings in the blasphemous tome. And at higher levels, you gain access to more printed materials and, and deeper secrets. And, well, at the end, who knows where this can take you. You end up peering behind the curtain and seeing the three men in their unedited form. Oh. <laughs> what about that highest level where you get to spend a night in Scott's spare room? No one has come out yet to speak about that. Uh. Everyone who has gone in there has ascended to the degree where they are no longer able to pass their wisdom down to the unenlightened. At least no longer able to speak. <laughs> I thought we called it playtesting. Ah, yes, that is another level, right? <laughs> it is. Was that all right? Or did we get too weird then? <laughs> I don't. I don't think there is too weird on this podcast. Well, we have a few new people to initiate into our cult now. Yeah, a big thanks going out to Cody Raslowski, and thanks also to Steve Weaver. Thank you very much to Jacob Olin. Thank you to Brian Parker, and thanks very much to Dave Thomas, and thank you to Jens Mellon, and thank you very much to Patrick Garrett Pavisi. Ah, and a uh, returning 
back here. I recognise this name. Thank you very much to Ray Inahosa. And thank you very much to the singular Rubik. And thank you very much to Celia. And also thanks to Jonathan Seymour. A big thanks going out to Craig Lawson. And thanks also to the uh, the singular Clams. And speaking of singular names, thank you very much to Stephanology. And thank you very much to Rick Payne. And another singular thanks here go out to Denzil. And thank you very much to Timo, or Timo. And thanks to Ian Brown Jr. Also thanks to Max K. Thank you very much to Jeremy Urban. And thank you to Jesse Apont. Apologies if I've mispronounced that, it may be Jesse Aponte. And also thanks to Johnny Leithhead. And thank you very much to Adrian Knight. And thank you to Clayton Webber. No corrections this time, we're doing good. <laughs> well, we might not be well, doing good, just nobody's corrected us. They've all been too polite. Okay, well, we can take our robes off again now. That feels better, right? They're, they're quite itchy, I find. Especially in this heat. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I, I find if you don't wear anything underneath them, I mean, all your bits can breathe beautifully. Yeah. You love that hair shirt. <laughs> I feel a D10, D100 sand loss coming up if he, if he does lift those robes. Well, until next time, friends, when we uh, carry on our search into the meaning of cults, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.